So we're in Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria, and of the son of Remalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remalia have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah, and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and, rest, and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired 
namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep, and it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter, for butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines at a thousand silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. Well, when we come to our scripture passages and when we read them together, it is always good for us to remember that our principal purpose is to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is rightly and properly the centre and focus of our attention in worship. So that whenever we come together, it ought to be with the desire that we might see Jesus, that we might discover him afresh, not only in the reading of the passage, but with our understanding, in our hearts, with the eye of faith, spiritually, so that in seeing Christ and discerning Christ and knowing Christ and knowing about Christ, we might be equipped for the trials and the troubles, for the challenges, for the difficulties that we encounter in our lives. The trials of this world beset the Lord's people just as much as anyone else. The weaknesses of our flesh are felt by the Lord's people more than anybody else. The temptations of the devil are directed towards the Lord's people, to the exclusion of everybody else. And for us to be ready to face the challenges of our day, we must know Christ. And for us to be ready and prepared for the world that is to come, we must rest in Christ and in his righteousness which is alone acceptable to God. Therefore, let Christ be the focus of our attention once again today. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has always been the evidence of acceptance with God. Abraham believed God and Christ's righteousness was imputed to Abraham 
in order to justify him before God and bring him into a new relationship with God. Indeed, James in the New Testament, in the little book of James, calls Abraham the friend of God. Abraham was the friend of God because he had been reconciled to God, because he had been justified by God, because he had faith in God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And James's title, a friend of God, is, is, is an extraordinary title, describing an extraordinarily an extraordinary relationship that Abraham had with God and God with Abraham. And yet, all believers are possessors of that same saving faith and are all loved by God with an everlasting love and are all called by his grace and blessed with spiritual helps and distinguished or set apart in this world by the gracious marks of God's goodness. So it is not just Abraham that is a friend of God, but you and I today. And this is how God deals with his friends. He blesses us and he draws near to us and he gives us sense and awareness of his presence. And in return, believers love their God. Believers love the Lord. We desire to honour him. We, we seek to serve him. Though we confess readily that it is always imperfectly. And we hold fast the hope of eternal life. Even when the doubts and fears of this life afflict us. We know that it's not our strength. It's not the strength of our faith that keeps us. Because we have learned that it is our friend and the faithfulness of our God that keeps us close to Christ. Isaiah too was a friend of God. And when the Lord directed his faithful prophet to convey this provocative message to the cruel and wicked Ahaz. It was faith in the Lord that emboldened Isaiah to obey. And in accordance with God's word, also to take his young son with him to confront this evil king. So today what I want to do is draw some lessons and applications from Isaiah's words to Ahaz in order that we might see Christ in them to strengthen our faith amid the trials and the troubles that we endure also. And in order to do that, I want to take just a few points. And the first one is to think uh, a little bit about Ahaz's sin. So Ahaz was king of Judah. Remember after uh, the time of David and, and Solomon the kingdom 
of Israel separated. There was a division, uh, Judah uh, on one side and uh, Israel, uh, the, the, the ten tribes on the other. And there was often animosity over the years as several kings came and went, uh, uh, rival kings in these different kingdoms. And this is the context of uh, this chapter today. Israel, or the ten tribes, had gone into an agreement with Syria to attack the kingdom of Judah. And Judah and the city of Jerusalem, which was its capital, were now being threatened by this combined force of Syrian and Israeli armies. It appears from reading the backstory of this incident, which you can find in 2 Kings chapters 15 and 16 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, that this had been a long struggle. It wasn't just a, a, a single pitched battle that was going on here, but there had been a, a long uh, a time of, of aggression and there had been uh, much loss on the part of Judah as far as wealth and as far as uh, military ability was concerned. So that Ahaz was becoming desperate. He knew that the nation could not withstand another assault. And now that these two kings were combining their forces, he and the people of Judah were afraid. And so Ahaz devised a plan to seek the help of the king of Assyria that was a much stronger power than Syria and Israel together in order to defend Judah and destroy the two enemy kingdoms. But despite being of the house of David, as Ahaz was, Ahaz had no time for the God of David. Ahaz was a weak man who sought his solace and help in idols and in idolatrous practices. He was a wicked man. And we'll see in coming days uh, that he consulted people with evil spirits and tried to communicate with the dead for advice as to how to live his life and rule his kingdom. I doubt that we could and I am sure that we should not try to uncover all the extensive wickedness of this man of whom it is said he made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen. If this means what many think it means, that is that he was sacrificing his own children to Moloch, to these fire god idols, then what was Ahaz, king of Judah, not capable of doing? And I think there's a lesson for us in this. We look around in our own day, we look around in our own time, we get anxious about the terrible things that we see happening around us. Crime and, and immorality, false religion, 
deceitfulness. But let us remember that there is nothing new under the sun. And when a person or people turn away from God, they open themselves to everything else. And God permits men and women to do all manner of wickedness in order that they might bring down on their own heads his judgment and righteous indignation. For he is going to punish their sin. So whatever the latest moral abomination might be that we see in this world, whatever the most uh, fashionable activity that, that men and women embark upon and, and think up and express uh, or invent to, to express their rejection of God. Let us not become overly anxious about it and let us not become depressed under it. I'm sure that if I were in charge, I'd ban it. Or I'd stop it. Or I'd make it illegal or, or something else. Well, God is in charge. And he hasn't done that. And nor should we imagine that our righteous indignation is any more than the Lord's. In truth, I fear that we oft-times don't rightly discern what sin is. For all the gross idolatry and immorality in the life of this man Ahaz, it was despising the gospel that wearied the Lord and that proved Ahaz to be a reprobate. Ahaz despised God's goodness. And he despised it in, in three ways. He failed to ask for a sign when he was instructed to do so. He pretended humility. And he solicited the help of Assyria. And it's the spiritual arrogance and self-righteous pride of men and women that God hates. And it is those things that will take many more people to hell than does the fashionable, sensual, self-indulgent sins of our day that so often stir our outrage. Yes, let us be offended at the sins of men and women, but let us realise that some of the most morally upright, good-living people will also find their end in exactly the same place as the grossest abominations because it is the repudiation of the gospel that takes men and women to hell. Isaiah told Ahaz that God would not let Syria and Israel destroy Judah. Now that was good news. And indeed, God fulfilled that prophecy because Syria and Israel did not destroy Judah but were themselves curtailed and ultimately destroyed. Now the Jews 
knew God's promise concerning the Messiah. They knew that God had promised from the very beginning of the world. Remember how we thought about that? How that, that proto-evangel, that, that uh, 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 a son that would be born would bruise the serpent's head and yet his heel would be bruised. The, the Jews knew that from the time of Adam in the garden. They knew it from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They knew of Christ from Moses. David spoke of Christ. They knew that the nation must be preserved because, as the Lord told the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. The promises of salvation, the promises of life, the promises of spiritual and eternal prosperity, the promise of a saviour were made to the Jews and the Messiah came of the Jews and he came to the Jews and the line of election and the line of grace and the line of glory at least in so far as it is known ran predominantly through the Jews it was the Jews who went out into all the world and preached the gospel so that acting as he did Ahaz was not simply being pragmatic in the sense that I need help, who can help me? Assyria to him was not an insurance policy. It was an alternative. He was denying that God was able to deliver. He was saying God's not needed in my life. God's not needed to deliver. Ahaz was anti-Christ. He despised David's God and he clung to his idol gods who could neither deliver nor save him. Now we might ask the question, why would a man do that? Ahaz's gods needed Ahaz's help. And those are the kind of gods that men like. Ahaz devised a human plan to save himself by his own means. And failure to ask for a sign was simply saying, I don't want God's way. His sham reasoning that he did not wish to tempt God wrapped his self-righteousness and his self-reliance in religious garb and, and, and terms. But effectively he was telling Isaiah, I don't need your God. I'll save myself and the nation without any help from your God. And Isaiah responded to that show of insolence by declaring, nevertheless, a sign would be given. And I want us to realise that when Isaiah went to meet with Ahaz by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, 
He already had this revelation at his disposal to deliver to the king. He surely knew what Ahaz's response would be. Ahaz demonstrated himself to be in this moment, regardless of all of the idolatry and the immorality and the wickedness that this man had perpetrated throughout his years, he showed himself to be unstable and without any establishment by his rejection of the good news that Isaiah brought. And Isaiah knew that that would be his reaction. God ordered this meeting and he sent his servant and he gave him the message and he gave him the vision that he did in order to confront Ahaz in his wickedness. And God recorded through Isaiah The Holy Spirit has preserved this conversation, this declaration of his promise. His promise of grace, his promise of Emmanuel. So that God used evil Ahaz in order to bless his elect people for thousands of years. Such was the importance of this conversation in this place on this day and the circumstances surrounding it. What was then this sign that God gave Isaiah and Isaiah relayed to Ahaz? Well, it was the sign of Emmanuel. He says uh, in, in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Behold, in scripture, when you see the word behold, it's, it's, it's like it's grabbing your attention. It's like italics in the text or, or uh, uh, bold uh, when we come to, to, to do our, our computer. It's, it's a behold to, to grab our attention and uh, to show us that something unusual and amazing is about to be said. And this birth of which Isaiah spoke and which he foretold was truly of immense importance. A virgin shall conceive and her son will be as the presence of God with fallen men to deliver and bless them. That was the message that Isaiah gave uh, to Ahaz and to the house of Judah that day. He was giving it publicly. Uh, This meeting had taken place outside the city, outside the court, outside a room where the king might have been encountered. This was a public statement that Isaiah was making here. And it was done so in such a way that this uh, message would be seen and heard by many people. That Ahaz would not personally see this child, nor indeed any of those living at that time, was not important. Ahaz's unbelief had already determined his failure. Isaiah beheld this sign by faith. The Lord's elect of Isaiah's day beheld that sign by faith. 
Men and women of faith in ages to come would lay hold on this prophecy of Isaiah and trust God's promise of grace and mercy. That God would dwell with men, establish his kingdom and gather his people. That was the understanding that the Lord was giving through the prophets. And we know that by the time the Lord Jesus Christ came, there was this messianic anticipation. Whether it uh, was uh, there with, with, with Anna in, 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 the, in the temple, or whether it was to do with the disciples, or whether it was in the general population. These were the verses that were equipping the men and women of faith to understand the consequences and implications of the coming Messiah. Ahaz, this reprobate son of David, would not ask a sign. But the true house of David, people of faith, would have a sign to comfort and encourage them in their troubles. And as the judgment that Isaiah was about to declare unfolded. So that here again in this verse is Eden's tree of life, is Noah's ark or Melchizedek's priesthood or Abraham's ram caught in the thicket. Here was Job's redeemer who would stand on the earth in the last day. Here was Moses' prophet who would come of his brethren and be heard of his people. Here was David's shepherd. Here was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here was true Israel's true king, personified in a child, wonderfully and miraculously brought into the world. Here is Emmanuel, God with us, for the forgiveness of sin, for the bringing in of salvation, for redemption by the shedding of his own precious blood and the fulfilment of all of God's promises of covenant grace. And here we see the care and kindness and the fatherly love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But the Lord Jesus Christ treats all his children the same. All his brethren are blessed with the same blessings. Some more, some less, perhaps. But he never left his Old Testament people comfortless either. Not then. Not now. He will not leave us comfortless. He brings unexpected sweetness out of bitter experiences. He brings times of ease on the hardest pathways of this life. He gives reasons for gratitude and praise even in the midst of our pain and our loss, and our loneliness, and our trials. And yet we see the opposite too. Because here was Isaiah, a faithful prophet of God, 
presenting good news, presenting gospel to this king, presenting comforting promises about the well-being of the nation. But in rejecting that good news, that good news became a curse to Ahaz and Judah. It is true that Syria and Israel would not prevail against Judah, but God would bring Ahaz's would-be Assyrian saviors down on Judah with greater ferocity and destruction than was ever heard of. How dreadful it is to have God for an enemy. How blessed it is to have God for a friend. How dreadful it is to have God for an enemy. And here we see particular grace. We all were at enmity with God. That was our place. We were separated. We were rebellious. We were opposed. And what makes us different from anyone else? What causes us to differ? But that he saved us and passed by Ahaz. That he called us with a holy calling and he left others uncalled. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Here is our sovereign God demonstrating his particular distinctive distinguishing grace to his people showering us with his love, bestowing us with his blessings, gathering us to himself, comforting his people. Oh, to be the friend of God. God converts blessings into curses and curses into blessings. What does God's elect good is an occasion of failing and falling for the reprobate. We deal with a living God. And this brings us to our closing point. People of faith believe God's assurances. As Isaiah spoke with Ahaz, the destinies of thousands of people over hundreds of years was being laid out in the words of these prophecies, settled in the promises that, of the judgments that Isaiah was setting forth. Ahaz sneered at God's promise to deny Syria and Israel victory. So Isaiah told him how Egypt and Assyria would be called for, hissed at. It would just be the case of, of God hissing. And these nations would obey his will and fall upon Judah and fall upon the house of Ahaz. He would bring judgment upon 
this nation and he would carry it away into captivity. And as the confrontation between Ahaz and Isaiah unfolded, we're told in the early part of the chapter that a little boy with a strange name stood witness to all that was being said and done. This little boy was not the Emmanuel who would be born in a day to come uh, by the, uh, from, from the Virgin. But this little boy was Isaiah's own son called Sheer Jashub. And the significance of his presence there that day is found in the child's name. It literally means a remnant shall return. As this story of Ahaz's encounter with Isaiah was told and retold throughout the ages of the Old Testament church, having been recorded by Isaiah in his prophecy and preserved by the Holy Spirit, it described what God's people experienced. They went through the war with Syria and Israel. They encountered and felt the domination by Egypt and Assyria. They endured the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. But through it all, the Lord's people could only acknowledge the truthfulness of all that Isaiah had prophesied. And they remembered the little boy whose presence that day at the Fuller's Field, at the end of the conduit, at the upper pool, attested and confirmed that despite all the dark days and the fearful years and the lost generations, a remnant would remain. The Lord's people would return. The promise of the Messiah would be brought to effect. The virgin's child would be realised and people of faith held to that assurance for hundreds of years through terrible judgments. It was their hope and it was their ticket home. Maybe it would not be them who returned. Perhaps it would be their children or their children's children or their children's children's children. But soon God's people would go home and soon God's promise would be realised. And people of faith still believe God's assurances. And sure it is, we get down and we get discouraged when we see sin abounding. We feel weak in our bodies, we feel weak in our flesh, we become aware increasingly of our feebleness. And we fear for the well-being of the church. And we wonder where it is all going to end. But we, the Lord's people, point to the truth of all that has been prophesied. And we place our hope in the faithfulness of our God who cannot lie. He said, Emmanuel would come born of a virgin and he did he said 
he would save his people from their sins. And he did. He promises salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he has been faithful. So that whatever this world holds for us, whatever it throws at us, and the wars and the rumours of wars and the earthquakes and the instability and the diseases and the cancer and the poverty and the loneliness and the wasting of our bodies or the wasting of our minds. The Lord's elect believe God's promises and we rest assured in those promises. Faith in Christ brought righteousness to Abraham, comfort to Job, and peace to David, and it shall bring glory to all who believe. Amen.